1: September 13th, 2013. What is the significance of that date? You may be asking. Why is this the first thing I'm hearing when I tune in to my Monday flagship Lions of Liberty podcast? Well, that day, September 13th, 2013, is the day that the very first episode of the Lions of Liberty podcast dropped. My interview with Stefan Kinsella, the first time I had interviewed anybody, the first time I had ever done a podcast. And now, almost six years later, not almost, exactly six years later, we are releasing a documentary, a mini documentary. It's about 15 minutes long entitled, And Live Free, The Lions of Liberty Story. This is a documentary with footage shot on our way to, from, and at Porkfest this past summer, paid for entirely by our supporters, our friends, our Lions of Liberty pride, our most loyal fans who send us monthly contributions on patreon and those loyal fans can watch this documentary right now by heading over to their patreon anybody who is a member of the pride at five dollars or higher per month can see that right now but for the rest of you it will be releasing on september 13th 2019 the sixth year anniversary of the lions of liberty podcast there is a free trailer that anybody can watch right now i will post that over at today's show notes which you can find over at lionsofliberty.com slash 415 Here's your host, your guide, your shining
0: beacon of liberty, Mark Claire
1: All right, my guest today is the co-host of the Part of the Problem podcast with our friend Dave Smith. He also hosts his own show called Run Your Mouth. I'm very pleased to welcome, for the very first time, the king of the cocks
0: himself, He is Robbie the Fire Bernstein. Robbie, are you ready to roar? Hell yeah, man. Um, I'm ready to party, get my roar on, lions, and all that shit. Let's do it, baby. I love it. I'm hearing all the keywords. Party, lions, roar. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like you're prepared. (laughs) I'm, I'm ready to do it, man.
1: Sweet, dude. Well, uh, you know, Robbie, it is your first time here, and I, I, f- I feel like you kind of brought the fire because uh, my soul is currently sweating out of my body here in the Lions of Liberty Studios in 80-degree uh, Los Angeles. Now, 80 degrees might not sound like a lot, but uh, when you're trapped inside a small room inside your house with no ventilation or air conditioning, it's a little hot. So I think you brought the fire directly to to me. Uh, but we can talk about more more about how hot and gross I, I feel right now
0: a little bit later on. Can we get a, first, <laughs> can we get a sweat report as the thing's going? You know, yeah, like- absolutely back I'm, i want the whole status as we okay. go i'll try to give uh you know updates maybe
1: every every 10 minutes if you start to get curious and you need an update feel free to let me know all right <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm gonna ask questions all right. So before well, I'll give you the first status right now, I simply have a small layer of film on my forehead. Hasn't gone much further than that, but it's very early. So we'll see.
0: all right. Well, when it gets your ass crack, let me know. <laughs> all right. Well, in the meantime,
1: why don't you start off just telling us a little bit more about yourself, you know, where you grew up, how you got into comedy and politics and how you eventually found yourself sitting across from uh, our good friend Dave Smith on part of the problem.
0: Oh, great! Great questions all around. Um, Well, firstly, I, I know Dave um, for a lot of years, even before I was on the podcast. Um, we used to hang out at this uh, comedy club called LOL. It's the world's worst comedy club, but Lions of called- Liberty,
1: the Lions of Liberty. Club? <laughs> wow!
0: Uh, no, it's it's over in Times Square. It's it's also the world's most unoriginal name for a comedy club. But uh, <laughs> him, myself, Louis J. Gomez, were there just about every single night, and we got to get up a lot, and we we all got better at comedy doing it, which was fun, and. Uh, dave this was a crazy moment i had with dave i know i've shared this story before but you know dave was this really smart guy he was always talking politics in the green room and he felt like he was mr smarty pants and so one day <laughs> i was like i'm gonna outdo this character who thinks he's so clever and knows everything and i was like dave you got to check out this book i'm reading and it was uh david stockman's um whatever his first book was i already forget the name of it the great Deformation, uh-huh. and. And, and I was like, I, I definitely have Dave on this one. He's like, yeah, I already read that. That's a great book. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? You <laughs> read this one? Uh, so just to take a step back, I, I started doing comedy all the way back in uh, college. I, I, I went to college for finance and learned really quickly that I hated it um, and uh, always was interested in comedy and radio and television. Uh, and what was cool about stand-up was you could just show up to open mics and do it and, you know, no one really pay attention to you or tell you that you should continue doing it, but you could show (laughs) up and just do it. and so i just started and I'm still- it's not like other jobs like you can't just show up and be and try being a firefighter you know
1: you no, have to no, like, no 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 at some points will be
0: like dude you're not a firefighter you're not helping us out <laughs> you
1: can't just show up and try
0: open heart surgery you know no no you can't just show up to a welding site and be like dude i'm just gonna weld you know like
1: <laughs> no i'll figure it out i just need to fuck up a few times and you know i'll get it
0: yeah yeah don't worry like i'm good with blowtorches i'll I'll, <laughs> I'll get this going in no time so you know i just started doing it i'm still doing it i love it and uh along the way i met dave and uh he handed me some libertarian literature i've become more libertarian as i go and uh was always really interested to some extent in politics because which kind of came from uh the finance background you got to be someone informed in what's going on in the world uh you know because people those are the people like you want to know who really knows what's going on you walk into any hedge fund or like real smart finance guys they know what's going on because like they're actually placing bets on it so you know they have to be in the know
1: Right, their their entire existence relies on having some kind of uh, insider information, I suppose.
0: Yeah, I mean, go talk to someone who's trading currencies. Believe me, they're as libertarian as they cut. Like those guys know what's really going on in the world. Mm -hmm. So, when you first went into finance,
1: was that just because it seemed like you know? I got to make money. I got to go into business, something that can actually earn me a living. At what point did you sort of realize that the amount that you weren't passionate about that, that you actually had to go and and kind of pursue things you were actually passionate about, you know, comedy or radio and that sort of thing?
0: Yeah. uh, So, I mean, part of it was I I grew up like uh, Orthodox Jewish. There were a lot of finance people in that. Well, it wasn't just finance people, but they were all like serious professionals. It was lawyers, doctors. It was that crowd. And of those jobs, um, working in finance seemed the most exciting. And a lot of <laughs> a, a lot of what I was interested in finance doesn't really exist anymore. Like what I thought was super cool was kind of the prop trading, and that like that that job literally doesn't exist, or if it does exist, it's going to Harvard graduates. I also graduated in the years that the uh, financial collapse happened, so those, those jobs were pretty hard to come by. But the um, I, I'll tell you the, the the two biggest things that kind of opened up my eyes to the fact that I, I w- just wasn't going to work in finance was. Um, I talked my way in, in college into a job where I was working on a, a gold trading desk and everything that they were doing w- was completely over my head. Uh, but it wasn't just that. They gave me like a book. It was, uh, I don't know if you're a finance guy, but there's this one guy who wrote like the, the best book on options. It was like the, the Black Shoals model, whatever the fuck it was. And they gave it to me to read. And, you know, I'm coming in every day and I'm interacting with these career professionals, been working in this career for over 25 years. And- I didn't read a single page of that book. I never came in and really wanted to ask them questions about what they were doing because I was doing open mic at night and I just realized, okay, this really isn't what I'm passionate about. And like, I kind of feel that way. If you don't love something and you're not going to be all in about it, you're never really going to be successful because you're not going to really care to do it. Uh, So that kind of opened up my eyes to the fact that I wasn't really, the other thing is I'm a huge spaz, which I I didn't know at the time. Like I'm really a spaz. And I'm telling you, if I worked on a trading desk, I would have cost companies millions of dollars (laughs) just on dumb errors. Like I can't, you know, I work in sales and like sometimes like, like, you know, we catch my dumb errors on contracts. Like, can I tell you a funny story, just dumb errors? Yeah, absolutely. I love dumb error stories. I once went to my boss, I I couldn't have been prouder. I was like, look, it's the biggest contract we got yet. I got a signed contract for whatever the amount of money was. And he just takes one look and he goes, dude, you know, you spelled your name wrong. (laughs) 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 So I'm very fortunate. I want to know which part of your
1: name you spelled wrong. Was it the Steen, the rob? I mean, yeah, no, no, it was the
0: Steen. It was the, you know, it was a digital signature, and I somehow just uh, forgot the S or something. I don't know what it was, but it was it was pretty blatant. And uh, props to my boss that he managed to cut me down in less than three seconds. <laughs> He was also funny about it. He literally said, he goes, listen, if you ever ask for a raise again, I just want you to remember that you couldn't spell your name right on the contract. (laughs) (laughs) So that conversation is
1: not going to take very long.
0: The answer is no. No. I also did really poorly towards the end of college. Like I failed a lot of classes. So I just realized like, dude, I'm not getting a job anywhere. So, you know, those were all the things that got me out of finance and into comedy. I was the opposite in college. I failed really poorly in the beginning because
1: I I found high school so easy, but I didn't party that much in high school. And and as soon as I got to college, I did. and And then I realized, oh, you have. Actually, have to do like some amount of work to not, you know, not just bomb all these classes. So I went in the opposite direction. I got oh, slightly better you. as I went
0: along. Dude, <laughs> I partied. I partied all of high school. I was I was a party animal. And then uh college, towards the end, I, I like I I totally stopped. There was no party. It was just all nervous. Holy shit! I can't pass these classes. Um, and it was largely, you know, what it was. I I just finance was the wrong major for me. I don't know if you're this way. Like you give me like history, like information spit back. I can do that all day or like sure. political science, all like legal law, like all that stuff all day. I'll get A's on there. Like I never showed up to school and I was a straight A student, but then what happened with the classes that killed me was the later finance stuff. It was like statistics, um, and, uh, um, one of the higher math classes, I forgot, I can't even remember what it was or um, one of those things, <laughs> No, whatever the calculus, it was just calculus, yeah. simple calculus. I found if you didn't show up to class, like the information you were tested on wouldn't be in the textbook kind of thing. So I didn't know how to like self-teach myself that. And I just, I, it was like groundhog day. I filled calculus, I think four times. And I finally told the guy like, Hey man, this is the last class I need to graduate. I'm never going to pass it. Do you mind? He help us out here get me yeah out of here. yeah exactly and that that's when you realize that sales is the right career for you when you can convince Professors to just pass you because you know you just kind of need the favor. <laughs> you know, I think that and that that's the real
1: skill. I think a lot of the the things we learn in college aren't necessarily the exact things that we learn in the textbook. It's kind of a lot of like how to maneuver these systems, how to network, how to uh, you know sort of become a, uh, the kind of person that can handle the sort of things are thrown at you. Not necessarily you know at least at least life skill wise. Maybe in the class you need to le- learn the stuff, yeah, but I, 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 the, I, the stuff I take from college is more you know more the life lessons than the people I met.
0: That, I agree with that hundred percent and I didn't do a good job of that with the part of it is the just not getting frustrated, showing up every day and just getting it done, um, which is also part of the negative of college. That's kind of the indoctrination that I think they want to impose on us is obedience and uh, also, you know, the willingness to learn information that firstly – can be largely irrelevant to your life or just wrong, but it, it's important for them that you just show up and take it in and memorize it and spit it back. Um, but then if you really do want to work a corporate job, those are all important skills and learning how to not get frustrated and just keep showing up and doing it is definitely, you know, it's definitely a good skill. I didn't have it, but you know, if kudos to the people that do. <laughs> Very much so. And, uh, you know, I, I think one thing that's sort of interesting about college
1: um, um, I totally just had a you know when you have a thought and then you start to say it and by the time you get five words in it's the thought is completely gone
0: oh that's dude that's it. every time I open up my mouth I or sometimes in the middle I'm like are you still talking do you have a point here come on wrap this up give the other guy a chance
1: <laughs> I, I think that's one of the skills of, of podcasting that I've learned too is you know especially because sometimes we'll do like a live type show where I, I can't necessarily just <laughs> have a complete stop I'll just be like all right I'm gonna t- keep talking and keep saying words until I actually think I've come up with with a question about this thing that I'm about to talk
0: about, and okay, what's your thoughts on that, Robs? <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you. It, it, here's a good sales skill. Um, at the end of like sentences that make no sense, you can just throw in like, "So does that make sense?" You just put it on the other person, or <laughs> like, here's another funny, fun thing, that, and then they might think yeah. it's
1: their fault for if they don't think it made sense, and then they they start to get in their own head. Like, wait a minute. Oh, yeah, it works is so it- well.
0: Or another one is before you say something complicated, you, this is a great one. You go, all right, so just to keep things simple. And then you say the most complicated thing you're going (laughs) to (laughs) say. And they're like, wait, why didn't I think that was simple? I must be really dumb. Exactly. It's great skills. I recommend both of them to anyone listening.
1: All right. well, what I, what I meant to get into was how, how you're t- talking earlier about how you know you were you're doing this finance stuff and your your passion just wasn't in it, um, but you you did have passion for something you weren't even getting paid for when you were going out and, and doing open mic night and clearly I think you probably saw a dichotomy there where you're you're supposed to keep up showing up at work and doing this one thing, uh, but meanwhile there's this other thing you do after work that you're so much more passionate about. So at what point do you sort of make that decision to just actually completely change careers? Because I think a lot of people get stuck in a situation especially uh, you know people that maybe dedicate like four years of college or even more people that might dedicate uh, graduate school or that sort of thing to a specialized skill and oftentimes they get to that job and they might not be passionate about it they might not love it uh, but they just continue to do it and do it and do it because it's what they've invested all this time in but it's you know really if you think about it it's a sunken cost that that time is already spent it's gone you can never get it back so it makes sense to just always pursue whatever you're passionate about but that seems to be really difficult for a lot of people to do to sort of make that You know, kind of break that connection between what the time they spent in the past and you know what they're doing presently. So, how were you able to make that shift and say, All right, I'm not happy on this course that I set for myself, I have to go and even, even though this other thing, you know, diving into the stand up comedy world that's going to be challenging. Uh, some people might say I'm really stupid for doing this, but you did it anyway. So, what made you make that shift?
0: Great question. And firstly, is I was very lucky in college that I worked a handful of um internships every year. And every time I worked a new internship, I just discovered a new career path that wasn't for me. So I felt very fortunate in college to work, you know, a bunch of various different jobs and just realized, hey, I hate all these. So I better figure out something else that better suits my skill set. Um, what, what I'm very fortunate with is, I, you know, I just learned really early on that, I guess, typical workforce jobs aren't for me. Uh, and when you're young and single, you know, you got more agility to kind of make these investments, And to this day, I'm still extremely single. And uh, what's nice about that is you can just walk into a job any day of the week, tell them to go fuck themselves, and move on with your life. There's not a ton of, you know, I'm not, I, I I don't have a mortgage, I, I don't have car payments, I don't really have anything that. You know, there are real life factors that kind of keep people into shitty, you know, shitty positions, shitty careers or whatever. Uh, My recommendation for people and I'm living this model, you know, I still work a full time day job that isn't my favorite thing, uh, but I'm heavily invested in. You know, I do my own podcast. I do Dave's podcast. I do stand up every night of the week. Um, Those activities don't really pay me very well. At some point, I hope to make the majority of my income from those. Uh, what I would recommend to people, is especially like if you're making good money because you've you you know you've worked hard and you've gotten yourself a good career job, kudos to you. You've done something that I couldn't do, um, and it means you probably have a lot of really valuable skills, and it's not a sunken cost. I'm sure all of your information and your ability to sit down and retain information, like you've built a lot of skills. Um, so especially if you're getting paid pretty well doing what you're doing, just keep doing it. My recommendation would be start investing time in what you think the other thing that you'd like to do more is. Um, you know, if you have kids that might not be an option, but then, you know, that's the choice you're making You're sacrificing working a job you don't like to give to your kids. And I don't think that's a, a bad or unfair lifestyle. You just have to realize, you you know, you can't win in life. You make your choices. There's a risk or, you know what I mean? Like sometimes I take huge satisfaction personally in that there's no winning. You kind of get, you you get what you work really hard for. Um, and you choose kind of the investments that you're going to make but my recommendation to anyone is if you have a side thing that you think you'd be interested in which i'm sure is kind of what you're doing with this podcast i imagine that you um um i imagine that you have a job but that's what you do and your weekends you imagine I'm, correctly <laughs> yeah that, but that's what i'm saying you're doing it also you find this to be more interesting but you know you, you, you don't make money doing these things day one you're not an expert doing it day one um and they are no unlike going to law school and taking on debt or becoming a doctor where there's guaranteed income on the backside There's no guaranteed income doing things like this, but you definitely build skills that even in your corporate job will pay you. So my recommendation is just in your spare time, invest in yourself, start just doing whatever you think that thing is that you'd like doing more. Um, You'll find out pretty quickly if it's something that you're passionate about and you love. And if it is, just keep fucking doing it and hope at some point you're so good that they pay you. That's my approach. Yeah, I think that's a
1: pretty wise way to look at things because, you know, no matter, we're all in a situation, you know, even people like me, like I love my quote unquote day job. I love what I do. You know, I don't know if I would spend 40 plus hours doing it every week if I wasn't getting paid. You know, I, I might do that. Well, not might. I've done that with podcasting. So I know I would do that with podcasting, uh, factually speaking. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I, I think even when we have jobs we love, there's always other things we might be more passionate about, other things we know we would dedicate more time in. And it doesn't need to be all or nothing. You know, you don't need to quit your job to start pursuing something else. You don't need to com- completely flip everything on a dime. You can still do the responsible thing and live in the real world where you need to get some income. And obviously, like you said, it's some, it some it depends on your situation. You know, if you're a single guy like you and me, you have more flexibility. Uh, if you have a wife and kids to rely on or that rely on you, well, that's a little different. Or you might just need to have a little sit down conversation with the kids about how daddy can't take care of them for a while because <laughs> hey, daddy l- wants to podcast. Uh, da- God damn it, <laughs>
0: daddy's walking out because uh, he thinks. Pop- Podcasting is a good idea. The, the other suggestion I have for people, and I know not everyone's brains works these works this way, but um, I, I'm kind of analytical and I can really kind of see things as component parts. And uh, sometimes, if you have a job that you're pretty skilled at and you don't like, you can probably start looking at it and realize, well, here's my list of daily activities, and I really enjoy when I have to do this kind of work, and I hate when I have to do that other kind of work. Um, and I think if you can start recognizing that, you can start figuring out how do I do a better job of delegating tasks or Um, You know, explaining to my company that I add more value when I'm focused on this one thing that I actually enjoy doing. And uh, if you work in that way, I think over the course of like three or four years, you can figure out how to, you know, reinvent your job so that you can do actually more of the things that you enjoy doing. Um, I, I guess the, the example for that would be like, for instance, I work in sales. There's a lot of end work that needs to be done, drawing up contracts, prospecting, keeping things organized. I hate all that shit. It's not for yeah, me. That sounds like the awful part to me. The actual talking to yeah. people sounds like the fun part. Yeah, exactly. So what I try and do is hire other people who can do the, the end work. And I try and specialize on the being on the phone part. And, um, you know, other people are, it's a skill. Other people are terrible on the phone. They don't know how to close. They don't like, you know what I mean? That is a paid skill. And so what I try and figure out with my day job is how can I spend as much time on the phone as possible because then I'm making everybody money and then I don't have to do the bullshit that I hate. So that's, that's the other way, you know, and you can do that. Like if you're, if you're a lawyer, there's some people that love researching. There's some people that love being in court. So you got to figure out how, like, how do you set up your practice so that you can be doing the part that you love and getting paid for it? You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Hey friends,
1: I got to take a quick pause here to tell you about another great libertarian podcast out there. It's called Free Man Beyond the Wall, hosted by the artist formerly known as Mance Raider now known simply by his real name of Pete Raymond. And I got to tell you, Pete is a machine. This guy brings you a new episode of his own every single Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and he has done some absolutely fantastic in-depth interviews. He's had on everybody from Ron Paul to Thaddeus Russell to Phil Labonte, the lead singer of All That Remains, a very diverse group of guests not always libertarians. He also did a great show with a Washington, D.C. insider lobbyist revealing a lot of the dirt that goes on behind the scenes in D.C. He has done so many interviews that I have just said, darn, I wish I did this one myself. So I really do want to highly recommend checking out Freeman Beyond the Wall. You can find it over at FreemanBeyondTheWall.com, as well as iTunes, Stitcher, and all those fancy podcatchers out there. So, uh, Robbie, let's dive a little bit more into this whole libertarian thing and how, how you got wrapped all, all all up in this. And, uh, you know, you to- told the story a little bit earlier about, you know, talking to Dave and thinking he was a smart guy in the room, trying to top him with the Stockman book, which did not work. But I- I'm kind of curious where your political thoughts began. You know, what like when you were growing up in high school or that kind of thing, did you think about politics at all? Uh,
0: w- you know, what was sort of your baseline before you started to think in a more libertarian way? Well, I'll tell you, this really did have a big impact on me. And I know that it's it, it's kind of like the, the dumber side of uh, being a libertarian, but I smoked a lot of weed in high school and I loved weed. I mean, I don't smoke as much anymore, but like, that was my thing. I was, I was like a total pothead. That was my entire jam. And when I was in high school, it was a different landscape, especially in New York for smoking weed. I mean, you could legitimately get in trouble. I also have very conservative parents. Like it was not, like culturally, you were doing drugs when you were smoking weed. That doesn't exist anymore. That's not really the way that people see it. Sure. Yeah. But at that time, that's what it was. And what was interesting about you know smoking weed in high school um, was that you realized, hey, government's not my friend. I'm doing this thing here, that I'm not bothering anyone. I really enjoy this. This is kind of what I'm all about with my life. And government is telling me that I'm a criminal, and then I can go to jail for this. And then, when you start thinking about the concept of going to jail for drug usage, I mean, it's comical. It's the government basically saying, hey, you can ruin your life by doing this, so we're going to put you in jail to make your life better. So (laughs) I just kind of understood as early as high school, just from being a person who enjoyed doing drugs and being told that I was a criminal for something that I enjoyed doing, hey, government's not my friend. And clearly, you know, like, clearly there's something nefarious going on here because I just know that I'm not a bad person for smoking weed. Um so I would just say first and foremost that was a real eye opener to um what isn't a lot of people's take on government of hey these guys are here for me and they they they're a resource and they're helping us out right away early in high school I had the idea of like okay clearly you know government's not my friend um then moving on from there what's interesting about pursuing finance is um even in college you do get a better picture of um you know, some of what's really going on in the world. So first is, I would say, like what makes me totally just not a liberal, um, was I was always very anti-debt. The usage of debt by government never made any sense to me. Like it just, the the whole concept of it makes no sense. Do you ever read a mad magazine as a kid? Oh, I loved mad magazine
1: as a kid. I actually had a family friend who worked for the magazine and used to send me these magazines. Like every month I would get a bunch of them. So yeah, I was, I was obsessed.
0: No, that's great, man. Do, yeah, uh, that's awesome. Was it
1: an artist or a writer? I think he was like one of the editors at one point. That's cool. That's so I'd cool. Have to, I'd have to go and you know, think back and talk to my parents <laughs> and re-ask <laughs> them exactly what his role was. Yeah, but that, I, I do remember reading those uh, vociferously. And, and, and I didn't really think about it politically at the time. But now that you mention it, I mean, that probably was one of my first exposures to politics and and sort of the,
0: the satirical aspect of politics. Oh, my. And the way that they cut down government, the, firstly, they'd bring up topics that no one else was exposing you to, especially as a kid. I got a poster. It's still on my wall, um, which was it's like an Uncle Sam spoof with Bush saying, um, I hear you listening with headphones. And then on the bottom, thanks to unwarranted, um, like uh, phone hacking or whatever. <laughs> or I had another poster on my wall, which was a spoof of um like the uh, Star Wars Clone Wars movie, but it was um, for Iraq War II. Like they just spoofed it, like, um, it, you know, that it was like the, the second coming of that. <laughs> right. I also remember this wasn't in a, like one of the comic books when I was a kid, but they did, and I can't find it. And it was so fucking funny, but they did this thing like, your mom tells you this while the government's doing that. It was like a simple joke like structure. And the, I just remember one of the jokes was, your mom tells you to save money, meanwhile the government is blank amount in debt and printing bills. So, like, firstly, just exposure to Mad Magazine definitely kind of cut into government a little bit. They were but, basically political meme culture before we had memes and before we had the way to distribute, you know, memes in that fashion. Oh, absolutely. By the way, I think memes is part of what killed Mad Magazine because Mad Magazine comes out monthly and so much of what their humor was. They used to literally – one of, like, their um, their feature things was they would Snapchat things for movies and then add dialogue to it, like fake dialogue, which is straight right. up memes. And I think I think that's one of the biggest problems. Is so much of what they what they were doing is now just on Instagram and Twitter. Um, Everyone's done it by the time they go to press. I mean, it's it's already been all around the internet a thousand times. Yeah, exactly. Just coming out once a month is too slow. But anyway,s just conceptually, I don't. Under, I never understood government's usage of debt, and I was, I, I you know, I would say I was what they would call like a New York Democrat, um, where socially you're liberal, fiscally you're conservative, um, which doesn't even really fit into either party now. I, two of the things that really kind of shifted my mind more towards um, being a libertarian is first is I took a class in college called, um, it was the, uh, the economics, no, 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 it was the political science of economics, or it was one of the two, the economics of political science. And what it was about was like, hey, listen, we have some really good ideas for how um, government should run and economists come up with really good ideas for how we can you know, benefit the economy why is it that politicians don't actually put these things into action? That was basically what the, what the course was about. And one of the books that we, uh, that we quasi read um, was this book. It was called the logic of political survival. It's by this guy, I'm going to fuck up his name. It's like Bruce, Buno de Mescoot or mosquito. I don't know. He's got a weird last name. <laughs> I don't know his real name, but
1: it sounds like you probably messed it up one way or the other.
0: <laughs> oh, I totally messed it up, you know, but he's like a, uh, he's a political science guy at NYU. He's really interesting. Wrote some great books. Um, and basically the theory of that book is that, you know, human behavior is very pr- highly predictable with game theory um, based off of the incentives. And the basic premise of that book is that power is a commodity And politicians are in the business of distributing goods to a base um, and it's their entire job is to get elected. And so what we can predict is that the basically the bigger the base is that they have to distribute goods to at least the more of a democratic. Like, in other words, if you got like a a system like uh, where, um, you know, it's a dictatorship and the dictatorship basically has to distribute goods to seven or eight people, the general and this guy and that guy in order to stay in power. Um, then you end up with, you know, a highly corruptive society where not that much, you know, gets back to, you know, the individuals. Um, whereas like, by the way, I think the technical term was the selectorate. And I don't know if I'm explaining this well, but like, if you take the U S which is a democracy, so at least like we have a very large selectorate that you have to give out free goods to, which is why you end up with things like healthcare, at least some of it's coming back to people. Um, but at the end of the day, politicians are not, you know, they're not trying to get elected so that they can help us out. They're in the business of power and um, they're going to like, you know, that's all they want is power. And it's all about kind of the political structure in which at least they have to do something for the people in order to be in power. And that's kind of predictable, but that just exposed me like really early on to the idea of, Hey, these politicians are in the business of themselves and they're in the business of power. Um, So coming out of college, you know, I kind of had the perspective of uh, government's not our friend. They're not helping us out. And then, uh, one of the big things was I never heard of the term libertarian until I became uh, came across the comedy of Doug Stanhope. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, that guy's got some incredible bits exploring the concept of liberty, which are hilarious. And I literally had never heard the word libertarian until, you know, until his comedy. Uh, and then once I was exposed to the idea of being a libertarian, I, I just always kind of told people, I don't like really being in groups. I know this, this, this kind of bothers people. And like, you know, it's that... Uh, it's kind of like almost that bisexual thing of, Hey, I don't want are like, don't label me here. Uh, but <laughs> ever since then, I always kind of just use the term I lean libertarian and that, that, and I still kind of feel that way. And then that way you don't need to fully commit to someone who's, who might be like libertarian. You're like, well, I just said I lean.
1: And I don't, I don't know. I yeah, don't know I don't know. I,
0: exactly. I, I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing my own thing here. I'm not, I'm not on any teams, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm available for hire. I'm farming myself out here. I belong to no political affiliations. I'm, uh, I'm on Team Me, and lucky for me, I've been embraced by the Mises Caucus. I'm the King of the cocks. I like being in charge. I get to make the decisions. That works out well for me. <laughs> the King of the Cox. And maybe we'll get into more <laughs> of your role as the King of the cocks in a little bit. Um,
1: I'm kind of curious a little more. How much? Obviously, I, I got to imagine it's a pretty good amount because of how passionate it is, and now the fact that you actually work right next to him. So, how much did Dave really take uh, your sort of libertarian leanings? And I guess push them, you know, maybe leaning a little more and more and more into the libertarian ideas as you've gone along here over the years. Are there any like positions specifically that you, maybe you held uh, previously and maybe, you know, either his insight or maybe other other the insight of others have really challenged you on that? You've really said, OK, on, on these issues, I've really I've gone full libertarian here.
0: Yeah, yeah. One of the biggest ones, like years ago, uh, Dave recommended to me, um, you know, Murray Rothbard's writings and uh, the first book he recommended to me was uh, what's the really small one? The, uh, man, what, 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 what's like the small one that people love? The one that it's got, it's almost like a pamphlet. You can read it, you know, two episodes of diarrhea. You can get through that one. <laughs> oh, man. I, the, the, way I remember information, it's the one with like, uh, um, like the, it almost the, the, the face with all like the, uh. The sinews and that shit in it. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. I remember. I remember <laughs> enough
1: vague information that I'll only recall it fully once we, you know, end the conversation or end the phone call. That that so we we might be a bad combination for, for
0: recollection here. <laughs> what's his main book? That you know, if you're recommending a Murray Rothbard book, what's the first one you're recommending? Well, a lot of people say For a New Liberty. That's not really a pamphlet one. Oh, I think I know. You're talking about Anatomy of the State. Yeah, Anatomy right. of the State. Thank there you. There we go. See, we got there. I was very right. close. So, Dave. Dave loves Anatomy of the State. That that book didn't yeah. quite do it for me. I love. Loved For a new liberty, um, the reason I love For a New Liberty is he gives such a great breakdown of like in practical terms. Here's how we could do things better without the state, and um, I found those arguments to be like on some of the things I wouldn't like. You know, I wouldn't have conceived, "Hey, we don't need schools," um, or that's absurd to say we don't need schools. But then in his breakdown, I was like, "Oh yeah, that that's a better way of going about this." Um, so For a New Liberty d- definitely, you know, really changed my mind about how much government do we really need. Uh, and then being around Dave, I mean, I've been exposed to so much, I, I mean, so many big ideas that I, you know, I still haven't sat down to read. Um, and I, one of the biggest ones I would say he really changed my mind on is I, I would have said before being on his show, when it came to foreign policy, I would have just said, this is beyond me. I don't really quite understand the dynamics between countries. And maybe it is kind of like a dog eat dog world where if we don't have a massive military and we're not kind of. Out there and kicking people around, the realist, um, the quote-unquote realist perspective. Yeah, but I, I wouldn't. I wasn't committed to that. I, I would. I was would standoffish. Right. I would just be like, "Listen, I'm not going to comment on foreign policy because I don't quite understand the dynamics of it. And maybe there's a possibility that, um, in a vacuum, if we didn't have a massive military, China would be over here. I don't really understand it. Uh, but you know, in spending more time on the show and hearing Scott Horton, and then also um, a, a, a sales book that I read really shifted my my view on that. Um, the sales book, I can't even remember the name of the book, but part of what they were saying in the book was basically, if you view the world as a dog eat dog world, um, you you kind of manifest it. And so like the joke I've said in terms, in regards to foreign policy is imagine like I'm trying to get some chick to marry me and I go on a first date and like, like, I really know, like, this is the one we're going to get married. And I show up on the first date and I bring my divorce lawyer. (laughs) <laughs> like, is, is that going to win her over? So it's like this idea of, hey, we're trying to be cooperative and we're trying to trade with other countries. And that's why we're building the largest military in the world. And we're kicking them around and we're in their countries. And that's how we're creating a framework for being cooperative is just bullshit. You know what I mean? So that's definitely yeah, it's like something- you, show,
1: you show up to a business meeting with like six of your armed buddies holding Uzis. And you're like, all right. And it's, and it's just your other buddy. You're like, OK, uh, so I guess we're ready to chat here. Yeah. Even footing, right? <laughs> and they're all pointing the guns right at his head. You're like, all right. OK. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm just
0: here uh, to be cooperative and make sure that we can trade and get along. And, uh, that's why that money you lend me is going to go for that guy's bigger gun. You know what I like? And, it's just, it's right. ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. Um,
1: you know, I, I'm curious, are there any, uh, you know, cause you, you still claim you just lean, you are just a leaner. So <laughs> <laughs> since you're just leaner, are there any issues that you're like, okay, on this one, I, I I, what not necessarily that you might oppose the libertarian position, but you might just have some questions, or you know, you just you can't get fully there for whatever reason. You have significant just uh, thoughts about how it might actually work in the real world. What what kind of is the most difficult, I guess, libertarian position for you to fully reconcile?
0: Well, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, change your your question a little bit, and let's go ahead, whatever. (laughs) Um, what is it about the totally anarcho libertarian opinion? That you don't want to say, hey, I'm like, uh, I, I'm I'm an anarchist. Can we can we go with that question? I like guests that completely take my questions and change them. I'm a fan, so go for it. Okay, was, was that not where you were at? I feel like that's. <laughs> oh no, no, I think no. I'm joking with you. I think that's oh, awesome. Okay, go, go, right. go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I I do kind of, and I've had this conversation with Dave. I have a slightly different approach to, um, I I, I guess to what brought me to liberty, um, than, than a lot of the anarchists. Um, and that is, I I feel like you guys have this really strong, um, strong love for the morality of, um, you know, the, uh, liberty of the individual and a strong opposition, um, to the, to the concept of that something can be done for the greater good thus far. Would you say that that's fair? well I I wouldn't say that
1: you can't that individuals and groups can't come together to, to do things for the greater good. I wouldn't necessarily say that uh, I, I just think the the way you organize for that greater good is important that you know the okay, the, so the means you use is is important It can't just be through violence and and it doesn't matter you know just like showing up in a meeting with your six so friends let, with let me uzans. let me
0: let me make a change that I, I guess you guys would be strongly opposed to ever introducing force um for the greater good that 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 conceptually, Um, becomes a moral issue for you. Sure. Yeah. Not, you know, non-defensive force. Sure. Okay. So when I was reading like, and this is kind of the difference between me and Dave a little bit for new Liberty was very convincing to me for Liberty and that it kind of was a very, you know, it it was a breakdown of, Hey, here's how we can do this better than government. Um, When I read the other book, I like the, I I, listen, I I can't necessarily argue for you. um, And we can come up with some conceptual examples, um, I'm not saying that I'm right. I can just tell you that the idea that we should never initiate force for the greater good—it doesn't get me excited. I don't read that. <laughs> right. Like, I'm just saying, most like, it doesn't. It, like, sometimes I read something and it gets me really excited. I'm like, oh, that's 100% right. I can get behind that. Sure. Um, I, I wouldn't make decisions ar- around that. And I think the one example I came up with with Dave once when we were kind of um, debating this was I said, let's say you got a heroin addict. And the guy is totally addicted to heroin and you had a magic pill that if you shoved it down his throat, he would never like his heroin addiction would just be cured. So in that case, can I not force it down his throat because I'm initiating force against a person? I know that he's going to benefit from the outcome, but you know, you guys are saying, hey, you can never initiate force. I understand that that's not a real world example. Um, well, it could be. I mean, because something close to that. I mean, I, I think I, I, I struggle with this a little
1: bit sometimes because I think there are examples in the real world kind of similar to what you're saying, where it might technically be a vi- violation of force. And you could say it's a violation of the NAP where it's still sort of the right thing to do. Like, for example, if you have a friend who's just completely smashed, completely drunk, and they're about to go take you know, take their keys and go drive, and you know that there's a good chance they're going to hurt themselves or somebody. Like, I might just steal their keys. I-, I might take their keys and hide them, or do something with them. And you could say I, I initiated force. I took the keys from them. I- I've, 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 have uh, initiated violence of some kind. I've, I've at least committed theft or temporary kidnapping or something. I mean, you could definitely say that is a technical violation of the NAP uh, along those, you know, AnCap libertarian lines. I might still say, but it was still the right thing to do. So I, I do think there, on in individual cases there are sort of i don't want to call them gray areas because i think anything you can sort of break down and figure out eventually what what the right thing to do is but yeah i i i see what you're saying at the point the point being there are situations where you know you might look at a situation where you can apply a little force and it's like right. okay i,
0: I kind of feel like i did the right thing so just conceptually i'm more excited by hey what will work better and i honestly believe that you know a totally free market works better Um, but I also think that like things, things can look really incredible on paper, um, and things can be unbelievable theories. Uh, but let me tell you from kind of working in business, sometimes you have ideas that like everyone agrees on and it seems like the right idea and you go and you try it and it just turns out to be wrong. Uh, so my feeling with the totally free model and the total anarcho model is that I wish that people would give you guys a piece of land that you could go try it out and I might want to go live there myself. Uh, but I just think that like ideas on paper, until they're actually applied, sometimes you have no idea why something won't work, but it just won't work. It's almost like in that scene in the Matrix when the guys dis- like you know discussing the design of the Matrix, and he said, "Hey, we tried to make a world where everyone could be," and for some reason humans just rejected it. And I think that there is some sort of like like in any business or really anywhere, if people buy into something and they want to work hard because they like the structure, you're going to have success. And I think that there are a lot of people who actually like, you know, a third party control of violence and they like the idea that, hey, everyone's forced to pay taxes and we all have to contribute to this thing. Some people, you know, we've said it before, governments like religion and some people, um, even though there's a tremendous cost to it, they feel like it's worthwhile. It's something that they want. Uh, What I would like is if we you know what I've said is I think as limited and as small as you can make government and as localized as you can make government. Um, then you can start getting at least better representation. You can start proving the model of, hey, what does not doesn't work here, and amongst proving the model, like, it's crazy to me that there's nowhere in the world that you can just, like, I don't even think you, like, if you were a billionaire, you were the, you know, the the living Coke brother, I don't think there's an island that you can just go live on, declare it Coke country, and live totally free and independent from a state. That's insane. That that makes no Especially sense. Especially if you call it Coke country. I don't,
1: I don't think yeah. they're going to leave you alone.
0: Well, that's true, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, that's insane to me. So, like, m- my feeling on it is that, like people should be able to live into areas where they're opting into government and people should also be able to go experiment with the idea of having zero government and people should be like, you know what I mean? Like I'm very, yeah. which, which you can argue is basically, um, an anarchy perspective. Um, I, I'm just a little bit res- like, I'm almost more anarchist. And I'm like, Hey, I don't want to force anarchy on people that want government. Um, but more than anything else, I just feel like it's on us to kind of prove the model Um, and so, you know, in whatever way we can get our piece of land and prove that it works, I do think that we would have the most success and people would go, holy shit, that's actually a better way of living. And, oh my God, like, I can't believe the economic prosperity over there or the healthcare that you can get or the job opportunities. Like, I think those are all the ways that you really, um, you win people over is by proving, Hey, this works better. Uh, but at the end of the day, to me, it's all about what works better, um, and so just like philosophically, the idea of never imposing on people for the greater good, it, it, it's not that it's wrong. It's not that I can't debate morally that like that, that, that's not a better way that we should organize people. Uh, but at the end of the day, just the way I think in my head, I'm like, practically speaking, what's going to work? And uh, I get very excited by what's been tried, tested and is successful. And I, I would like it if we had more of an open landscape for people to try new ideas for government.
1: Yeah, and I think what you're describing is is in many ways one of the biggest challenges for libertarians, and and that really people overall who anybody who's, who challenges the overall systems that everybody accepts that are in our society, because people just feel comfortable. A lot of people just like the idea of hey, there's this government. They take money from me, and, and they take care of all the things I need to take care of. I don't need to. I don't want to. I don't want to go buy like hiring insurance companies to you know to to worry about my property and you know to protect me from things and to protect me from other governments. I just like how how things are now, and it really is a challenge for libertarians to present not only a different moral way of looking at things and to convince them that, they, that people should think of things in a moral way but that, that they should take a system that many people are somewhat comfortable in and they should look at it completely radically differently a lot of people would just say well, well why should I I'm fine now I'm, I'm fine how things are I don't I don't want to have this weird anarchist system so but I, I think the way you're describing things of of giving people the ability to opt out or opt into some other non-governmental type of situation. I think that that really is anarchy in many ways, because we're probably never going to convince everyone on the planet... To not have these systems that uh, you know we largely dis- disagree with, uh, I think the best we can maybe do is kind of what you're describing, like at least say, all right, well, can you let us go do it then? Can you let us just not? Can you just not be violent with us if we just want to go do something else? Can you not try to control an entire system the exact way you want to, and then I won't try to do the same thing to you? And then maybe over time, everybody sort of figures out what works for them, and you know, if we're not all trying to force the rest of the world into into whatever system we decide on, maybe we can all live a little bit happier and you know, not show up to our business meetings with our our six friends with uh, Uzis.
0: Yeah. And and I do, I really think a big part of it is the human opt-in element um, that like, it's like in any company, if you have motivated employees and they want to work hard, your chances of success are, you know, significantly higher than if everyone shows up and feels like, Hey, I'm forced to work here. I fucking hate this place. I'm going to do as little as possible. Um, And I think that's almost uh, like a lot of what's lost within our culture is that there's so much Government's taken on so much where they said, "Hey, listen, we can handle this. You guys don't have to do it. We can handle it." And so we don't really, at least from what I see. I, you know, I grew up Orthodox Jewish. That was a very different landscape in terms of that they had very strong communities, and there was a lot of, um, you know, within the community, people helping each other out. Now that I'm outside of a community, there, there's literally zero of that. Um, But like so much like in other words, like, you know, socialism works on a kibbutz, I think, but that's because people are all there voluntarily and they are opting into, hey, I like this and they want to make it work. If in a small group environment, people want to make something work and they're going to work hard for it, you're going to have a better outcome than like, you know what I mean? Like if you force some people into Libertyville and they're so convinced that it won't work that they just have a bad attitude about it and they don't want to show yeah. up. You know what I mean? That's not yeah. going to work out for them either. Yeah. And the the kibbutz, they're not going around to every other neighborhood they can find saying, all right, come on, join our kibbutz or we're going to murder you. <laughs>
1: that's right, not, exactly. That's
0: not how it works. So it, 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 it like – I love it. I just think it needs to exist under an opt-in model. Um, and I guess what I don't love—I I don't know—I I think I kind of explained my, my my position, which well, so. like well, like I said, when you come full circle, it's not that. It, 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 I guess it's just my own way of framing what you can present as being, you know, anarchy. To me, almost any system
1: ultimately is morally okay and even morally compatible with libertarianism as long as there's an opt-in, opt-out, as long as you have voice and exit or voice or exit or something like that. I mean, as long as you're not completely forced into a system, the system itself – isn't really as much of a problem. It's, it's that it's that initial force. You know, if you decide you can be in a system and then that system is based on the fact that you have agreed to have your taxes taken or what have you or distributed in whatever way. Well, I, I might think it's stupid, but it's, you know, as far as my moral concerns are, those are largely assuaged at that point.
0: Yeah. The conceptual, and this is just, you know, we're, we're totally just going into the the, the land of conceptual, but um, uh, imagine we had that. And then at some point, every parcel of land, like three generations from now was bought up and societies decided to group themselves in it, like in a certain way. So now you're third generation from people who decided to structure it in a way, and there was no new place that you could go to, to now like, you know, invent your new whatever government like wherever you were you were forced into some kind of rule i don't know where i'm going with this (laughs) like then that that because then that situation becomes interesting because you're like oh once again there is no opportunity for opt-in and what does second generation force look like like in other words let's say me you and our grandfathers we all just like we all agreed on a system of, hey, if you're gonna live here, there's gonna be a 30% tax. You're welcome to go live somewhere else, but we've decided that everybody who lives here has to contribute. And that almost like a zoning law. You know, we're we're gonna we're all gonna share the cost for garbage and blank. And if you wanna live within within the border of this region, it's a 30% tax. So is that is that now forced? No. Everyone agreed to it. Like literally, you could say 100 percent of people agreed to it. So what happens when you're second generation person that lives within that area? Um, so like, is that, how's that viewed from a Liberty perspective? Is that now force or is that something that, like, you know, since people opted into it at some time, you, you kind of get what my the question I'm posing. Sure, yeah. I mean, I mean, at what point
1: does that initial opt-in, you know, are you now forcing every anyone? Essentially, you are forcing, Yeah, you're forcing every generation generation into that same system, unless unless they also have the same ability to opt out or perhaps even change the system. I mean, yeah. These are all uh, these are all
0: hypothetical situations that I hope can get more worked out in the real world someday. I guess. Yeah, but from a from a very practical standpoint, like just now to go super practical, what I really, I I think is achievable. And I like, I'm a big fan of states, state rights. And I think just the more localized government is the the more of an opportunity people have to congregate with like-minded people and at least get a government that reflects their interests. And what, what, what's really powerful about that is like, let's say, let's say you had no federal government and like Texas was, you know, Texas was totally Texas and you had some real freedom loving people that all started congregating in similar areas. You might end up where like they, where they show, Hey, if we get rid of all the licensing laws, um, companies have come in and started providing really affordable healthcare. We actually have the best healthcare in the entire nation. And then right. other states start realizing, Hey, we got to duplicate that. And we're already seeing that, and you're going to see more of this, is as states go bankrupt because they've got these huge, massive pensions and liabilities, and the taxes go up and people start fleeing for other states, there already is competition among states for people, which is a form of capital. Um, and so the more localized government is, the more we kind of force them at least act like a business um, and you know have to try and recruit us to want to live there for our tax dollars. So- I at least like in practical terms, I would say that that would be um, what I'd like to see more of. For sure. Robin, before we drop off here, at least with the main
1: show, I know you're going to stick around for a little bonus show. I want you to get in a little more to uh, your own podcast, the run your mouth podcast. It's a fun show. I've tuned in quite a bit. Uh, It's, I'd say it's not it's not a political show, but some of the ideas kind of kind of creep in there. It's sort of a more of a comedy take on things, and uh, also you're coming off a, a pretty fun summer, I think. Uh, why don't you tell us a little about what you've been doing too? I believe you've been something about uh, hanging out on patio, smoking weed. I don't know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we've been doing the uh, the summer porch tour and the porch the, tour. There you go. Yeah. The idea of the summer porch tour is that I really don't get out of New York City much, and so uh, and I also I love a good porch. I love sitting outside. Uh, and Who doesn't love a good porch. Exactly. Porches, porches, bring porches and sandwiches bring people together. You know, <laughs> we, we didn't get into that, but you really want to know how we can make the world a better place. It's more porches, more sandwiches. Um, and so what we do is, uh, listeners invite us over to their porches. We go out there, they co-host the episode and, uh, those have been a lot of fun. Uh, if you've never checked out the show, like you said, it, it's more of a comedy show. Uh, sometimes we really do get into headier, um, libertarian politics uh today i'm going to be doing a full episode on bitcoin with the uh with the Fagcast guys um Spicy. yeah we do Those which
1: guys are always trying to trying to one-up me with my guests i'm gonna get this show <laughs> out
0: before they do though <laughs> they're technically they're, they're coming on to my podcast so you're safe and sound okay. uh, well then you're the one one up me before i get them on well, you, you want to hang out for, for the Bitcoin show? It's nah, good. I got stuff to do. Oh, uh, look at that. Now you're, now you're the one blowing me <laughs> now, off. Now, see, uh, now I got a big time, both of you. <laughs> <laughs> I respect it. So yeah, definitely, uh, definitely tune in. Um, we definitely do talk uh, Liberty topics, but it's not the focus of the show. We did a whole show where we competed to see who could smoke more of an ounce of weed. Uh, <laughs> uh, we'll spend an hour debating what kind of bread is best on a sandwich. And then, you know, we'll talk about Bitcoin for an hour. So we're just idiots being idiots and it's fun. Check it out.
1: All right. Well, I can't leave the audience completely wondering. So, what is the best type of bread to ha- to create a sandwich from, in the uh, Rob Birdstein point of view?
0: Well, what kind of sandwich are you talking about here? That's very vague. See, you know? it's, a- it's, it's <laughs> all about what, what we're going to eat. I'm listen. I'm a big fan of rye bread. Like uh, rye, rye bread, bread is fantastic. Rye bread's fantastic. Very I also, delicious. Very Jewish. I love it. <laughs> I also, uh, I live in New York. I get some of the, the access to some of the greatest freshest bagels in the world. Uh, bagels are almost underrated in their versatility for what kind of, uh, you know, sandwiches you can make. And, uh, most, most recently, uh, cheap as all hell and healthy. I, I've had these, uh, Vermont bread company, uh, uh, hundred percent whole wheat English muffins. And I have been making more like eggs and sausages and just throwing on there real cheap. And, uh, you know, so I mix it up, but you know, I, I'm going to go with uh, rye bread is my current number one. All right, well, we might dive more
1: into the sandwich stuff in the bonus segment we'll do for our Patreon. But until then, Rob, it's been a blast having you on the show. Keep up the great work. Keep up the great work you're doing, not just with Dave Smith on Part of the Problem, but uh, you know, with Run Your Mouth and everything else you're pursuing in life, uh, we wish you nothing but the best, my man. So keep up that great work. Keep on roaring, Rob. Roar! All right, Liberty Kitties, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Robbie the Fire Bernstein. I know I sure did. And most importantly, I finally completed the part of the problem triumvirate. All of the part of the problem hosts have now been on this program. Of course, Dave has been on several times. Our good friend Mike Brancatelli, his former co-host, has been on a few times. And now, finally, the fire has come to roar with us. And uh, the roaring did continue. We have an over 30-minute bonus segment For our Patreon subscribers, for as little as $5 a month, you get access to all of our bonus audio and video content. And Rob took questions from members of the Lions of Liberty Pride in that segment. Many, many ridiculous questions and we had a really good time. So be sure to check out that bonus segment or go ahead to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Join the Pride for as little as 5 bucks a month. Get access to that bonus segment and so much more amazing content such as Conspiracy Corner. We're doing another one very, very soon. Degenerate Gamblers. They had an amazing episode on Friday, over an hour and a half of just so many hilarious stories, a little bit of gambling talk, but mostly hilarious stories uh, from our college days and otherwise. So I really do highly recommend checking out Degenerate Gamblers if you're in the pride. If not, get the heck in there. And of course, if you don't want to cough up the five bucks a month, we do have the introductory $2 Lions Cub level. It doesn't get you all the bonus audio and video content but does get you into our secret facebook group which allows you to see the live streams of our drunken democratic debates which are returning in september the uh the dnc decided to give us a month off there were no democratic debates in august and i think we're all pretty fine with that but they're coming back they're actually coming back Uh, believe it or not the second democratic debate in september is airing the same day as we release And Live Free, the Lions of Liberty story, the Lions of Liberty mini-documentary that I mentioned at the top of this show. Uh, Of course, you can also see that trailer. We post it on our Facebook, our Twitter. We'll have it on our Instagram. And, of course, again, at today's show notes. This is the 415th episode of the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast. That means you can find the show notes at lionsofliberty.com slash 415 I'll also post the trailer for and live free over there and again you can see the full 15 minute mini documentary detailing our pork fest adventure and our journey as podcasters by joining Patreon right now, or you can wait until September 13th. That'll be a big day. You got a Democratic debate. You got a Felony Friday. You got a live drunken recap with us. You got a documentary dropping September 13th, the sixth year anniversary of Lions of Liberty. Circle that one on your calendar, my friends. It's a Friday the 13th too. I don't know if I should be worried about that or what. Is that a bad omen? A bad sign? I don't know. I'm just gonna embrace it. We're gonna we're gonna absorb all this energy. And make something out of it. So circle that day for liberty on your calendar. For liberty or bad omens, depending on what you believe. And of course... It's not just me doing this for the last six years. I brought on some fellow Lions of Liberty to help me grow this podcast, and that's why every Wednesday you can hear Brian McWilliams with his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty on Electric Liberty Land. And of course, John Odermatt wraps things up with his amazing, hard-hitting, and inspirational look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday, which will have its own separate podcast feed very soon. It will still be on the Lions of Liberty feed, but John, as he's mentioned on his show, a Couple times is going to be starting a new separate feed to sort of uh, allow people to get into these stories, these very inspirational stories. Learn more about the criminal justice system without necessarily being attached to the libertarian label, which can, you know, often prevent people from even getting into these ideas in the first place. So the hope is with a separate feed, we'll be able to attract people from different walks of life and to to find out about these stories of injustice. And of course, we'd love to follow these people right back here to this podcast. Uh, you know, once they've dip their feet in once they've gotten things uh, a little wet in the Liberty water, so to speak. So uh, please do keep your eye out for that felony Friday podcast feed uh, coming very, very shortly. And uh, we will have more and more to come. And uh, one thing that's going to come very soon, if all goes well, I always have to say that because you never know when, when a recording can go awry, but we are planning on bringing back next week, the latest edition of The Liberty Draft. There will be two more rounds of drafting with all six of my Lions. Of course, my fellow co-hosts, Brian and Odie have their own Liberty Draft teams, as well as uh, Howie, JB, and Rico are regular contributors here, so please do tune in next week for the Liberty Draft. It's always fun. It's always a good time. It's always a riot. Maybe even Robbie the Fire Bernstein will work his way into one of these teams. You never know. But that will be returning next week, if all goes according to plan. Uh, and until then, folks, I only have one more request of you, and that is, of course, to just live love! and live free.